I just wonder, before we begin, why you are here this morning. What is it that got you out of bed on a Sunday morning, got the kids dressed, got everyone fed, got everyone loaded in the car, and got yourself out to church? What was it that you were thirsty for that got you here this morning? Maybe you have a felt need for community. You're feeling alone and you wanted to come and and find some community here. Maybe you're feeling condemned and needed some assurance, or maybe you're just looking for a great experience in worship. Maybe you don't know what you need at all, but you just woke up this morning feeling, I need to go to church. I'm thirsty for something. See, we do everything that we do in life as a response to some kind of thirst, right? Like, we we don't do anything just because I'll just do it. Nothing that we do is random. We do it because we know we need something. We're hardwired to thirst, literally, for water, so we drink. We're hardwired to feel hunger, so we eat. What kind of thirst is in you this morning? Hannah just read for us from John 4, which is a passage all about thirst, all about need. And before we jump in, I want to put something to you. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's something in the heart of Jesus that is kind of irresistibly drawn towards our need for him, our thirst for him. Right, when we acknowledge our need and our hunger, our thirst for righteousness, as he put it, that is where Jesus loves to show up. And so, as we go this morning, a prayer is just that God would open our eyes to reveal our genuine thirst, our genuine need for him. Praying that he'd reveal to us those places where we're drinking from wells that could never quench our thirst, and that he would be gracious this morning to draw us to himself, to allow us to drink deeply from him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what we want to be this morning, people who hunger and thirst for Jesus. We're going to begin just by exploring the reality of this very needy woman that Jesus bumps into at a well. And then we're just going to ask, what is her truest, deepest, most genuine need? Do you have John 4 open in front of you as we go? Uh, We left off a couple weeks ago before Easter Sunday as Jesus' disciples were beginning to baptize more disciples than John was. And this caused a kind of uproar in Judea. There's this kind of new rabbi on the scene. He's beginning to gain a lot of disciples. And John the Baptist was asked about this new rabbi who's surpassing him. And he said the famous line, I must decrease and he must increase. And so we left chapter three behind with this kind of sense that Jesus is about to step into the fame that he deserves. He must increase. And so here we go. Something exciting is about to happen in Jerusalem, we think. And in verse one of our passage, the Pharisees even, they begin to catch wind of this Jesus who is baptizing people. They begin to catch wind that this building Jesus movement is catching some momentum. The Pharisees, before their eyes, see John's statement coming true. He must increase. Jesus' fame is beginning to increase. 
And if this is a movie, the action is just beginning to heat up. We've just got past the first kind of expositional first act, and here we go. There's about to be some drama, we think. Jesus finds himself at the beginning of this chapter, at the center of a religious storm brewing. If that was me, and I expect if that was you, and you knew the religious elites are starting to catch wind of who you are, starting to really realize that you are worth listening to. I would stand up before the crowds and declare once and for all, this is who I am. You would catch that lightning in the bottle. You would take advantage of the fame. But that isn't what happens at all. Verse 1, Jesus hears, the Pharisees know that my fame is increasing. What does he do in verse 3? It says, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Jesus, increasingly famous, leaves the place where all the spiritual excitement is. He leaves the place where all the most influential religious teachers are, and he heads back in the direction of home to Galilee. Galilee, the land of the Gentiles, it's called. The place where really there's not much going on at all. The back end of Israel. He heads back home to Galilee. But have a look at verse 4 with me. John writes something very interesting. He says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Let me just show you a map of Palestine at the time of Jesus. If you knew nothing about the religion of uh, the, the religious and kind of political atmosphere of this time, you might think that what John says is geographically true. Jesus is at the bottom of this red line at the beginning of the chapter, and he wants to get to the top of the red line. So geographically, hey, yeah, Jesus has to go through Samaria. But culturally, that is simply not true. Almost every faithful Jew especially a Jewish rabbi, they would never cut through Samaria. They would cross the Jordan and then they would head north following this blue line. For most Jews, Samaria was not somewhere that they would dare set foot. Why not? Well, to boil down into one minute a very complex historical situation, the Samaritans were essentially the offspring of Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles during the Jewish exile. After the exile's over, the Jewish people come home to Jerusalem and they don't consider the Samaritans to really be part of the faithful core of God's people anymore. They're outcasts. And in fact, in 400 BC, the Samaritans actually build a kind of rival temple on Mount Gerizim. They only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament. In every way, post-exile, Jews and Samaritans are enemies. There's a popular Jewish saying at the time which shows uh, just the kind of misogynistic and uh, very kind of legalistic culture in God's people at this time. They used to say to each other, Samaritans are menstruants from the cradle, meaning they're unclean from the cradle. They're not even worth us looking at. We should cast them away from us from the moment they're born. A faithful Jew would never feel compelled to go through Samaria. They would always go around. So John in verse 4 says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. What does he mean? Because it was not culturally necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. Here's what I want to put to you. Jesus was under no geographical compulsion. 
His compulsion was spiritual. Jesus knows he has to go this way. He has to follow the red line through Samaria. Something is waiting for him in Samaria. So Jesus, the recipient of fame, leaves the religious big shots behind and goes right into the heartland of the enemies of his people. And then from verse 5, he approaches a town called Sychar. He finds himself tired and thirsty. And we get used to this, don't we? The Son of God, the Word become flesh, tired and thirsty. Just notice there, John beginning to tease out this theme of thirst. Jesus sits down, parched, the heat of midday, sits down next to Jacob's well. We'll come back to that well later on, but for now, look at verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Not only has Jesus dared to enter into the land of Samaria, but here comes an actual Samaritan woman. Jesus in this moment really should just kind of keep his head down. Let her fetch her water. He can chill out and then he'll be fine again. Instead, he turns to her. He asks her for a drink. See, in verse 9, she's outraged. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? John just wants us to suddenly feel the scandal of this request. I just want to tease it out for you first. This woman is a Samaritan. Jesus is a Jewish man. We've already seen the severity of that. Second, this is a woman on her own, speaking to a man on his own. Now, we don't feel the weight of that at all in our day, but there is something culturally scandalous here. Later in the chapter, when Jesus' disciples return, they express dismay that he is speaking alone with a woman in the middle of nowhere. Commentator Craig Keener writes that for ancient Jews, quote, social intercourse between unrelated men and women is almost equivalent to sexual intercourse. In other words, for Jesus to ask this woman for some water is genuinely right on the verge of culturally completely inappropriate. Third and last, this woman is very clearly a social outcast. There is no feasible reason for someone in the middle of the day, 12 noon, the hottest hour there is, to come away from the village on their own to fetch water. Nobody in their right mind would venture out of civilization into the desert at 12 noon. That isn't what women used to do. They would go together in community to fetch water. The only reason she is here on her own is that she has no other option. For some reason, she's excluded from fetching water with the other woman. She's ashamed. She's alone in her community. And Jesus is a respected Jewish rabbi who everyone is talking about in Jerusalem. Respectable Jewish men did not sit down next to outcast Samaritan women like this. Jesus should be nowhere near her. And yet here he is. Let me just be clear. This is not that Jesus is kind enough to say, ah, you're a woman and being a woman is very weak. Let me love you. 
is that Jesus looks to the social exclusion of his day and he rejects it out of hand. What does John mean when he writes that Jesus had to go through Samaria? He means that Jesus is utterly compelled to go to those that he called the least of these. His heart is unstoppably drawn towards people like this woman. We need to reckon this morning with a big question. To who is Jesus utterly compelled to go in Glasgow? If this passage is right, then it is precisely those people that are dismissed out of hand by our city. It's to the refugee family that haven't learned English yet, living in their high-rise flat, excluded, and don't know anyone. It's to those that are caught in the webs and the depths of addiction or abuse. At another level, our culture is just willing to turn a blind eye to the everyday struggle of so many people. Jesus is not willing to do that. Jesus sees, he sees the single mom of three struggling day in and day out to make ends meet. He sees the loneliness of an elderly person who has lost so many people that they love. And his heart is utterly drawn towards them. It's to these people that Jesus is completely and unstoppably compelled to go. If you're a Christian and you don't share that heart, and we had better get on our knees as a community and ask him to fill us with that heart. But maybe you're here this morning and you feel like this Samaritan woman. Look, I'm lonely. I'm excluded. If this was me, I know I, I too would be out in the middle of the day. Maybe that's how you feel. Jesus is drawn towards you in your pain. In the Gospels, we don't just see a slight favoritism in Jesus towards the downcast. There is a landslide. <laughs> Jesus is unstoppably drawn towards you in your pain. He cannot help himself but come to you and hold out his healing presence. Jesus, because of his intrinsic compulsion to go to the least of these, leaves Judea and enters Samaria and encounters a woman with, on the surface, tremendous need. But classic Jesus wants to press deeper. He's not content to say, oh yeah, you're lonely, let me be your friend. He wants to press deeper. He wants to press deeper with her, and this morning he wants to press deeper with us as well. Have a look at verse 10, and we'll just read again to jog our memories. Verses 10 to 18. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. 
Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Let's just jump in halfway and start by looking at verse 16. We'll cycle back to the earlier part of this conversation. But for now, verse 16, go call your husband and come back. Just begin to get an insight here into why this woman might be alone in the middle of the day at a well. Jesus knows everything about this woman. And with no tact at all, just presses her button. Go, get your husband. Jesus has an absolute habit of doing this. To Nicodemus in John 3, he says, aren't you Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? Sore spot. To the rich young ruler in Matthew's gospel, he says, yeah, you've done everything you have to do to inherit eternal life, but now go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Go and get your husband, he says to this woman. He knows what her response will be. This is not him just looking to talk to the man of the house. He knows what her response will be. The reality of this woman's situation is just terrible. And it isn't necessarily her fault. Jesus lays it bare in verse 18 when he lays it out. He says, you've had five husbands. And then now the man that you're sleeping with isn't even your husband. There's a kind of mixture of heartbreak and sin going on in this woman's life. For a woman in her culture to have been through so many husbands, something very wrong has to have happened. Either she has got so unlucky and been widowed five times, or she might have been divorced five times. The most likely case is she gets married, her husband realizes she's infertile, he divorces her. And that happens five times. Can you imagine the depth of that feeling of shame? Whatever the case, she has been hurt. And her response hasn't been to turn to God, it's been to turn to another man, to keep her heart safe by not marrying him. Some commentators wonder whether this man of hers is actually married to someone else. Either way, Jesus doesn't condemn her. He just lays it out. You've been hurt and you've turned to sin. Her heart is a mixture of pain and sin and the woman, when Jesus presses her button, just shirks away. She has nothing much at all to say when Jesus first asked for her husband. He's hit her sorest spot. He has identified the point of her truest, deepest need. I think John has something from the prophet Jeremiah in mind when he tells us this story. Jeremiah 2 verse 13. God speaks through Jeremiah and says this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God makes it clear throughout Jeremiah and the other prophets, we can't help ourselves but drink from the wrong source. We can't help but bow down to idols, to worship anything but God. That is the nature of the human heart. Jesus puts his finger not just on this woman's felt need, but he puts his finger on the empty 
broken cistern that she's trying to drink from. So in verse 10, he says, you should have asked me for a drink. She doesn't get it for now. But he's just beginning to probe the depths of her thirst. Six men and zero satisfaction. D.A. Carson sums it up well. He says, her thirst was not for natural water, but for God. And I wonder, wonder which empty cistern you find yourself continuing to return to, to try and drink from. Which of those three kind of cultural idols of sex, money, and power have you by the throat? Earlier on in John's Gospel, in John 1, when Jesus calls his first disciples, they ask him, Lord, where are you abiding? There's this moment where we begin to see John tease out, Jesus abides in the Father. And now we're posed with the first time in John's Gospel where we should turn to ourselves and ask, where am I abiding? Where have I made my home? Where do I turn day in, day out for comfort and joy and satisfaction? Where am I abiding? Maybe you keep turning to the same person for sexual comfort. Person who does not care for you. Maybe you've hurt people around you in the kind of pursuit of success and wealth. Maybe you're just utterly worn down by the cares of this world. You've been hurt one too many times. You've trusted the wrong person one or two too many times. And you've been looking in all the wrong directions. This is all of our stories. We've been drinking from empty cisterns that don't hold any water. And you think, well, no, Lewis, I'm, I'm a committed Christian. It's not me. And for many of us, this is much subtler. The Puritans used to like to speak about, they called it the deadening effects of innocent delights. The deadening effects of innocent delights. They meant by that that the things of this world just edge us into apathy before God. John Piper puts it this way. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not just the big things. Misplaced worship looks like numbing ourselves to the goodness of God by the nonsense we keep taking in online. It looks like a seared conscience because of one too many soft core porn scenes on Netflix. It looks like I just want to make the most of my weekends, so I'll catch up with a sermon online. It looks like an endless nibbling at the table of the world. Whatever it is, here's where we are. Our mouths are dried out. We're thirsty for God. And yet, for some reason, we keep trying to quench that thirst 
at broken cisterns that don't have any water in them. It's like trying to cure chronic fatigue with a Red Bull. It's going to get you through the last hour of a drive home, but it is not curative for chronic fatigue. We're drinking at empty cisterns and our thirst is not getting quenched. You'll forgive me for quoting C.S. Lewis. He wrote <laughs> this. I had to. This time I had to. <laughs> Here's what he said. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We're in a place to cycle back then and understand Jesus' words in verse 13 with more clarity. Here's what he says. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Which water? The water of sex, money, ambition, power. You'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Jesus is the only source of living water. He is the only one that can truly quench the thirst of our hearts. For this woman, Jesus is all she has been looking for in men. Six husbands down. I wonder if you remember what we observed about a month and a half ago in the story of the wedding at Cana. John lets us know a strange detail. There were six ceremonial jars. Why did he do that? Well, we said it's because six is one shy of seven, the number of perfection. Six jars, six husbands. And this story happens at Jacob's well. All throughout the Old Testament, women meet their husbands at wells. In Genesis 29, Jacob himself, who the Samaritans look to as their kind of source of legitimacy of Jew, as Jews, Jacob comes to a well in Genesis 29 on his travels at high day, it says. And there he meets Rachel, who goes on to be his wife. Genesis 24, Isaac's servant meets Rebekah at a well. Exodus 2, Moses meets his wife Zipporah at a well. Meeting a woman next to a well is what we call a type scene. It's bog standard Bible. It's like the classic expectation that if a prince kisses a sleeping woman, she'll wake up. Ancient readers knew that when a woman meets a man at her well, she's meeting her husband. Six husbands. And here comes number seven the one whom John the Baptist has just called the bridegroom. Here comes the husband who will finally fulfill all the longings of her heart. The one who won't leave her. The one who won't divorce her. The one who never dies. The one who will never fail to provide for her. All that is his can belong to her and he will take all that belongs to her. Alice read for us in our prayer meeting this morning from Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. That is what Jesus holds out to this woman. 
because of the seventh groom, all the desires of her heart can be fulfilled. Because of this man, Jesus, all the desires of your heart can be fulfilled as well. Are you longing for acceptance? Jesus calls you beloved. We have longing for wholeness. Jesus binds our wounds. We have longing for excitement. Jesus takes us on an adventure of faith that nothing can match. Jesus is the answer. No matter what you're thirsty for, it's him. He is the all-satisfying one. When you feel like the woman at the well and you want to cry out, Lord, give me this water so that I don't need to keep coming here every day to draw more. Lord, give me something so that I don't need to keep returning to this person. Give me something so I don't need to keep striving for success. Jesus looks to you and says, come to me and drink from the fountain of living waters. St. Augustine put it better than anyone else when he said, you made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He is the only source of rest. He is the only place that our thirsty hearts will find water. He's the only one. He's the seventh husband. Here's where I want us to end. The woman seems to reply in the strangest way in verse 20. She just kind of seems to want to change the subject completely. Talking about her husband, and then she starts talking about mountains and religion. She says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. This feels strange. It feels like a kind of total 180 on the conversation, but... Jesus sees her question for what it is. And he says, no, you've got it completely wrong. See, she's still trying to find the source of her identity and her kind of ethnic and cultural circumstances. She still wants to drink from the empty cistern of Jewish-Samaritan debate. And here's what Jesus tells her. The living waters of true worship do not flow from Mount Gerizim. And they don't flow from Mount Zion. For that matter, they don't flow from any one place. They flow from Christ himself. Time is gone, Jesus says. Time is gone for patching up our wounds with religion. Time is gone for going to holy places. They're empty cisterns too. Now, he says, at long last, the time has come for true worship. For God's people to leave their empty cisterns behind and worship God face to face. To come directly to the fount of living waters. You might remember in Exodus when Moses goes up and down the mountain. He mediates for the people. 
And if the people come too close, then they're burned alive. They, they literally can't come up the mountain. Jesus is saying, I have made a path up the mountain for you. You don't need to send Moses anymore. You don't need to come to Jerusalem and let the priests do the work. Here I am. Too many of us are content to continue to let Moses run up and down. Too many of us are content to continue to try and find a kind of modern day priest that will atone for us. Jesus says the day has come when true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. When they'll come directly unmediated before the throne of grace, boldly, without hesitation. This morning, we come in the spirit and in the truth of God's word. Not hedging our bets. Not kind of trying to bend God's arm to win him over, not trying to bring a sacrifice. True union has come. We have full access to God because of our bridegroom, Jesus. All that is his is ours. We think, Lord, I've sinned. I'm like this woman at the well. He says, yeah, I know you've sinned. But Jesus in whom you live, never sinned. All that is his is yours, and all that is yours is his. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. In the kingdom of God, there is no more here or there. There's no more Jew and Samaritan, or male and female. There's no more included and excluded. All of us in Jesus of Nazareth can be one. Because he looks to this woman and says, verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am. For the first time in John's gospel, Jesus gives himself the name of God. Ego eimi in Greek, I am Yahweh in Hebrew. Jesus says, I am him. The one looking to you, I am. I am the God of Jeremiah the fountain of living waters. I am the seventh bridegroom. I am the end of your thirst. We're going to continue worshipping God now. And we do so as the true worshippers that Jesus taught us the Father is looking for. Does that mean it means we do it in response to the truth of who God is, but we also do it in the Spirit. Here's what I think God wants to do this morning. I think he wants to just, by his spirit, dig around in our hearts a little. Like he wants to point out to us those empty cisterns that we've been drinking from. He wants to point them out. He wants to call us to leave them behind. To come and drink deeply from the fountain of God's goodness.